Today it's Wednesday the 7th of August and you are listening to Ledarredaktionen, a podcast from Svenska Dagbladet. I am Tove Livendal and with me today are my colleagues Katarina Kerkeinen and Edward Hollerts. And today we have a true guest of honor in the studio. It's Fraser Nelson, editor of The Spectator. Welcome to our podcast. <laughs> First of all, let us tell the listeners that the idea for this podcast originally came from our colleague Ivar Arpi some time ago. But it wasn't until you encouraged us this new year that the idea really came to fruition. So we'd like to thank you for this. By handing you a small token of appreciation. Oy. This is a collection of Swedish short stories that the three of us chose for you yesterday in a bookstore in Gamla stan, Stockholm's old town. Fantastic. So now ska jag lära mig bättre svenska. That's the idea. Oh, it's English. It's in English. Yeah, okay. No. Okay. Great. Strindberg. Okay. Fantastic. Thanks. We are lowering the threshold. <laughs> Okay, thanks so much. So there are many questions we would like to take the opportunity to ask. So we have agreed to take turns. But first, could you tell us what brings you to Stockholm? Um, my my wife is Swedish, and I I come here as more often as I can. I, I love this country and everything about it. There's to visit Sweden still feels like you're visiting the future. Actually, in so many ways, and Swedes always roll their eyes when I say that. But <laughs> you know, it, it, there is. So I guess you know, when you live in the country, all you can see is its problems and its defects, and they come into sharper focus than what you get right. A visitor will see things that you envy, and uh, the sheer beauty and romance and audacity of this country, its people, its ingenuity, never ceases to amaze and inspire me. So um, I try to come here about four or five times a year, always in summer, because there is no nicer. Place place on God's earth than Sweden in summer. And I, I, I was in Gotland. W- w- I was with you last week, Tove, in Gotland. And it's, you know, there is so much, there's so much about it. Um, so I, what can I say that I, I'm passionately in love with this country and it never ceases to give me ideas. Shall we reveal for the listeners that you tried some pottery as well on Gotland? Yes, <laughs> I did. I, I can't say I'm an expert, but I tried to make some um, so, so, so some handicraft here, but I don't think it's going to be that um, pride of place on my mantelpiece. <laughs> okay, so let's go into the more hard business then. Why did you and many other British people vote for Brexit? I voted for Brexit reluctantly. I am a Europhile. I mean, as you might expect, I'm married as a Swede. I try to speak Swedish at home, but not very well. And um, I'm always been very proud of regarding myself as a European, as well as a Scot, as well as a Brit. And that puts me in a minority of people. Um, so I always thought that if a referendum came, I would vote to protect the EU and our position in it. But then there have been some other trends that have given me pause, not just in Britain, but throughout Europe and, and America. That the globalism that has done so well for me, that has given me so many opportunities, has given me this sort of two-country life, um, has brought with it some challenges for other people who don't have university degree, who don't have the opportunity to exploit these advantages. It's meant that things are getting tougher for them. Their children are now against... It feels like the children are up against the world's children when it comes to finding a job. For those who aren't um, particularly highly educated, it is uh, brought it tougher to find a job. Um, it has meant salary progression has been far lower. And most of all, there's been this feeling 
as if the politicians don't really care about them. That the future of politics, whether you are left or right, you were signed into this globalist consensus. And that the future was always going to be less barriers, more internationalism. And if we can't find people to do a job in Britain, we're not going to try too hard. We're going to pull them over from Poland or Lithuania, and we're going to make the economy grow that way. Now, of course, if you're an employer, if you're, this is a great system. If you're somebody like me, this is this is a great system because it means you can get more people to to to, to work and um, with you before you as a barman or a nanny or things. If you're in the market for that, this is a welcome trend. But if you're on the other end of a social scale, it's difficult, and you feel that the politicians aren't really paying you any attention. So. The way I saw it, the globalism had overreached and it needed to be dialed back. People like me needed to make some concessions to the rest of the country to protect the social cohesion because there was growing this populism in Britain, as we can see all over Europe, even here in Sweden. And the populism was, it's a name that we give questions that we don't like being asked. It's questions about uh, about the nation, about immigration, about a sense of belonging, about a sense of respect. And for too long, people had dismissed these questions as being racist or xenophobic. Another way of telling a whole bunch of people to basically to shut up and don't ask questions because this is the future. Now, if this is taken, I think what has happened in any democracy, this can only last for so long. The governing classes can only, for so long, carry on in a way that doesn't carry with them the consent of the majority of people. And they're talking a significant minority, a quarter, a third of the population, were unhappy with this. So, of course, this was going to express itself. It's expressed itself in populism in most of Europe, and in Britain it's expressed itself in Brexit. The way analogy I use, it's like the voters having the government like a dog on a lead, and the dog is running away from them, so they tug back the dog, saying, look, I'm over here. Don't You might be interested in these fields and foreign countries, but right now I'm here in my relatively um, uh, poor neighbourhood and I've got problems I want you to, concern, to address. And I figured that that democratic adjustment was going to be painful, but it had to happen for the sake not only of social cohesion, but for the sake of the globalism that I still believe in. Like, I still want to have a country that looks outward on the world, but you need to manage this better than we were doing it, and you need to take more people with you than we were doing. So Brexit, for me, has been very painful in so many ways. I very reluctantly um, backed it because I thought the EU would reform. I thought it would change. I thought it would listen. I thought it would respond democratically in the way that governments have to respond. But it became clear to me when David Cameron lost his battle to renegotiate that the EU was not going to respond. And therefore, the EU was becoming a source of instability in Europe. The EU was actually leading and um, becoming a divisive force and inspiring this populism that I was so worried about. If the only two options were to stay with the EU on the train, no matter where it's going, you can't change the destination, or to jump off while the train is moving, it's uncertain and it's going to hurt. Those are two bad options. I came reluctantly to believe that jumping off the train was the least bad option. Now, hardly a day goes by without new revelations about Brexit and its consequences. Could you tell us what is happening in the process right now and what do you expect from the near future? What is happening is we tried, Britain tried to negotiate with um, the EU, but there was a great problem. The majority of politicians in Parliament voted Remain. 
They, their heart was never in this. They didn't really want to go through with this. They were almost looking for excuses to come out with a half Brexit, a quarter Brexit. I mean, let's take Norway there. Exactly the same thing. People voted not to go in the EU, but the political classes wanted to join. So you end up with something pretty similar to EU membership. Now, Britain was going down that road. Uh, but ultimately, Theresa May's deal, which, by the way, was not a Brexit deal at all. It was whereby Britain would leave the EU in name, but we would still be members for every other respect, including the money, including the free movement. And in two years' time, we would then have other negotiation. That didn't get past Parliament. And there was going to be no other way. So you ended up with this standoff where Parliament was not going to budge and the EU wasn't going to budge either. So what then happens? Then the issue of Brexit becomes a question of democratic accountability. If, pe- if people voted for Brexit in a referendum, do the politicians really say, sorry, it's too difficult, we tried, but we just can't get it, so can you please forget it? Or can you please, like Ireland, vote again because we didn't like the answer you gave us the first time? It's a very difficult question to resolve, but fundamentally, my belief is in a democracy, you have to respect what the people say, at least sometimes you do, and this time you really do. So what then happened was, when it was clear that the the Theresa May's government was trying to get out of this somehow, that Nigel Farage returned from nowhere, he'd been a radio host, then he starts up a new party, within six weeks... This party went from being created to coming first in the European Parliament election. It was therefore clear that unless Brexit was going to happen, the Conservatives were going to be destroyed, the Labour Party was going to be destroyed, that Farage was going to roll into Parliament. He wasn't going to win power, but he'd have a quarter of the seats and you'd end up with a kind of impasse that you see in so many European parliaments when an insurgent party suddenly comes from nowhere to gather a third of the seats. So the Conservatives then panicked and thought, OK, this is an existential crisis. Unless we get Brexit done, we are through, through as a party, through as a government. So they then reached for the emergency button, and that button is called Boris Johnson. So Boris Johnson then arrived as leader of the Conservative Party, and he um, appointed a former colleague of mine, um, Dominic Cummings, to be his chief of staff. Now, the Cummings appointment is more significant than everybody else that Boris Johnson has appointed because Cummings is a really rare guy in politics. He is deadly serious. He doesn't want power or money. He has done nothing since he won the referendum campaign. He is an incredibly driven and principled person, but he is not a great one for compromise. He gets results. Did you, the film about Cummings and Brexit, do you think it was, no, a, a true picture? Yes, when I watched that film, I was amazed at how Benedict Cumberbatch had captured Dominic. His thoughtfulness, his sort of oddness. Um, I should declare an interest here that a lot of these characters are I've got a personal relationship with in some way. Boris Johnson was my former, it was my predecessor as editor of a Spectator. Uh, Dominic Cummings is married to my deputy Mary Wakefield. Uh, so I am uh, I'm talking here about pe- people who I know personally, and it's quite difficult being a sort of professional here. But um, but given that I like and admire Dominic, I was all set to hate that film to think they'd cast him up as being an enemy. But instead, I thought they showed everything, his strong points and his weaknesses. And in Cumberbatch, they'd captured this oddness, this intellectual, I'm going against the grain, but I'm going to do it this way. This strange combination of aloofness 
because he doesn't really care. He hates the rest of the parliamentary game. He hates the way politicians carry along. He wants to get things done. But it's not so he can get a good job or he can get... Since the referendum campaign he won three years ago, he's done pretty much nothing, Dominic Cummings. Um, And now he's come back to get Brexit done. We hear only a few days ago that he's pretty much taken control of a Conservative Party operation as well as the government. So we can expect some interesting times ahead. You call Boris Johnson an emergency button. You yeah. think it's going to work that if we it's pressed mm. now, what's going to happen? That's a very good question. I would say it's about 50-50 if this works or ends in disaster. Now, that is better odds than faced before Boris Johnson, where it was 80% disaster. <laughs> Because we just don't know. It would be a fool who would... Pre- I mean, politics is so thrillingly unpredictable now. That scenario A is that Boris Johnson will hold the EU, will blink at the last moment, they will give us a Canada-style trade deal, and we will proceed, having finished Brexit negotiations, with a Canada-style free trade deal, and we will avoid a no-deal Brexit. That is the most optimistic scenario. Scenario B, Boris Johnson stays in power, the EU does not blink, because the EU prides itself on this intransigence. The EU wants to say, not just to Britain, but to everybody who criticizes it, we do not respond to pressure. You can bully us and shout at us as much as you like. Look at the Greeks. They had a referendum getting us to change our minds, and we didn't because we are the EU. We don't change. Deal with it. I think right now there's a very important political message the EU wants to give out. So I don't think... I think that EU is unlikely to change its mind. I could be wrong, but that's how I see it right now. So therefore, Boris Johnson stays in power. We go through with a no deal Brexit, and that will bring some months of turbulence. Now, the big question is how much turbulence. I'm on the optimistic side. I think it will be turbulence rather than a calamity. But let's face it, nobody knows because we're all going into the unknown here. I think it would be deeply regrettable because it's all so needless. If it were turbulence, it would hit Sweden, it would hit Ireland, it would hit the Netherlands, it would hit France. And for what? Because politicians could not put the interests of people ahead of their own um, political vanity. But I think that's a very real prospect. Then you've got scenario three, that Boris Johnson loses a vote of confidence, the politicians bring him down somehow, and Brexit is stopped. Or, in theory, it's halted. They agree to have a second referendum. Jeremy Corbyn comes to power. The politicians find some way of stopping this process, of stopping Boris Johnson. I'm not clear what that process could be, because right now I think they're out of options. Because let's say, for the sake of argument, Parliament is on holiday right now. When it comes back, let's say they have a vote of confidence in Boris Johnson, and they win. But they can't force him out of government the next day. He's got a long time. He can actually stall until October the 31st when Britain comes out of the EU. And then he can have an election. But by that time, he will probably win that election because the Brexit party, remember, it's still between 15 and 23 percent of the polls. It will be punctured like a bubble balloon if Brexit happens. They will have nothing to say. So the Conservatives would have united the votes on the right But the votes on the left or the anti-Brexit, because right now those two terms are it's not, it's unclear whether British politics is divided in right and left or Brexit and Remain. But you'd have Labour, the Liberal Democrats, the Scottish Nationalists, the Greens, all fighting for that Remain vote. Well, the Conservatives, if Brexit is done, would have a pretty good handle on the Leave vote. So there could be an election, but I can't see how right now the procedure where they eject Boris Johnson from power 
before the 31st of October. Mm. Uh, just a follow-up on Boris Johnson that you that you know well. Um, he's also a new leader for the Conservative Party. Uh, what do you think that will mean in, in politics and in policy? Which direction is the party taking? Right. Uh, uh, again, the, the, there are, there are um, positive and negative interpretations of this. The negative one is that Boris Johnson is a mini Donald Trump, that he looks and acts crazy, that he basically is a populist, that his becoming leader of the Tory party shows the populists have taken power in Britain, that he is just like um, Wilders and, and he looks, he talks, he acts like a populist. So we are now entering the uh, a dark period where the centrist forces will have collapsed. Now, a great many people who are conservative voters and who are my friends and normally agree with me on most things take that interpretation. I think that's fundamentally mistaken for the following reasons. I think that Boris Johnson's style is a very different style. There's no doubt about it. He says things that make people outraged. He doesn't try to be, to have, to be in the middle. He doesn't mind to say people people things where they get angry. This time last summer, he described women in the cabs as looking like post boxes. Now that caused a huge amount of. I remember being in Sweden this time last year, reading about it in the Swedish press about how Boris Johnson had referred to women in the cabs as post boxes, letter boxes, um, and um, so in that now he so that style borrows from populism. He's got the sort of political entrepreneur skills of a populist. But then look at his policies. He is a liberal down to his fingernails. He's way more liberal, way more liberal than Theresa May was. Now, I regard myself as liberal. And I'm so happy that Boris Johnson has replaced that awful woman. I thought she, Theresa May was one of the most, the worst, most illiberal, unpleasant prime ministers that we've ever had. She was anti-migrant, She refused to ground assurances to the EU nationals living in Britain, for example. So people like my wife was not was given no assurance that she could even stay in the country. That, uh, every Swede living in Britain had their status with a question mark under it, thanks to Theresa May. The first thing Boris Johnson did is say to all of these guys, you can stay forever without any condition, no matter what happens at Brexit. The second thing he did was grant amnesty to illegal immigrants. Now, Think to yourself, would Donald Trump ever do that? This is like a sort of crazy Bernie Sanders uh, policy, right? This is a very liberal policy. Um, the, 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 now, the financial policies is pursuing more money for the National Health Service, more money for the people in these small left-behind areas. He is not really a sort of tax cuts and small government conservative. He's promising more government spending. Um, he declares himself passionately in favour of immigration. Now, there are even people in Swedish parties who would hesitate to say that right now because of how badly it would go down. So so let's think, yes, his style, his voice, his rhetoric, his techniques are similar to that of a populist, but his policies are liberal and centrist. In my opinion, voters have had enough of the sort of Reinfeldt-style centrist politicians. They want a new style of politics, a new tone. It doesn't have to be destructive. I think Boris Johnson unites these two things. Speaking of rhetoric, our main editorial today, written by our fourth colleague Jesper Sandström, who works from distance this week, takes a look at the increasing use of violent rhetoric, also expressed by the American president, and how that connects to the recent tragedies in the United States. Uh, I recently interviewed Niall Ferguson, who warned that a violent language has historically been a precursor of physical violence. Do you believe 
that is what we see. I am less convinced about the link between the words politicians use and the behaviour that people make. I think politicians in general, whether for good or for bad, have got quite a limited ability to change people's behaviour. I mean, um, it's, you know, great people will listen to this podcast and read the newspapers, but not everybody follows politicians that much. To be honest, we're talking the most engaged 20% of society follow really what's happening in in current affairs um, with any great deal of enthusiasm. And they are not people who are usually likely to go out into the streets and respond. So, um, and also, there was a very interesting study done looking at racist language and behaviour in America since Trump came to power. And that showed that it's gone down significantly. Um, Not because he came to power, but the point was this trend was happening anyway. So I think sometimes people like me, political journalists, can confuse what politicians are saying with a national conversation. When I talk about national conversation, I'm really only talking about political debate and what proportion of the public are involved in that. So I don't, uh, I think it's, I listen to what Trump says and some of his language I regard as uh, as downright racist and appalling. It pains me to think the leader of the free world can speak in that way about Mexicans, about Muslims. But I don't think this is changing what Americans think. I don't think that relationship really exists. When David Cameron thought he would change British society by the words that he used rather than policies, I didn't think that was going to work. And I don't think the converse works either. One thing that we've talked about is the state of the public debate in Sweden Mm. and the media's role in that. Just like in the US, much of the debate is quite harsh and quite polarizing. But at the same time, there is for quite some time been a feeling that there are issues that cannot be debated and that the range of acceptable standpoints is Mm. quite uh, narrow. Do you recognize this uh, description? Is it something uniquely Swedish or how would you view it from a British and European perspective? Well, I think that Sweden gave the world the notion of the opinion corridor. (laughs) Indeed. And now this, of course, isn't uniquely Swedish. It's, um, It's something that exists everywhere. But as so often, the ingenious Swedes were the first to establish and codify and describe something that is happening. Now, I I was looking at the original Swedish research for this, and um, it involves areas where there's great public support, but there's not much political support. And it includes things like how there should be more wolves, right? Now, I don't know if that's a controversial topic in Sweden, but anyway. um, Right, right, uh, that's something I've yet to learn about uh, about this country. But I guess every country has got this. Now, um, I do think that this explains populism. Quite simply, the opinion coroner explains populism. Because what's happening is you're getting people who've got great concerns and they're being told these concerns are illegitimate and should be kept off the agenda. Now, it could be everything from from wolves to the effect of immigration on society. Um, And the narrower it gets, the more likely that people are, are to use the word extremist or racist to describe opinions held by a third or half of society, this creates a gap in the market for new political parties who will talk about these concerns and they will increase. So I think it's as simple as this. Politics is a market like everything else. Now, Donald Trump has came to power by identifying areas which are things that were supported by half of America but were he would be attacked for by other people. For example, let's take building a wall, right? 
crazy idea, but broadly speaking, half of Americans agree with the sentiment. Now, Trump worked out that the way to get a constituency was to be attacked for a policy that a lot of people agreed with him. So he would say this. Now, nobody would listen to him because he was some crazy guy from reality TV, but he relied on the American media to attack him and give him that profile. And they rise to the bait every single time. Um, so he was able to find out that he was being attacked and everybody was talking about how he's terrible for saying we want to we want to restrict Muslim immigration on America. This is terrible. I think it's terrible. Everybody's attacking him for saying this. But if you look at the opinion polls, the majority of people in Europe support this, let alone America. So the opinion corridor allows, it creates a space for narrower it is, the more space there are for populists and the um, and the more d- unstable our society becomes. Now, one of the um, and I think newspapers, of course, ought to exist to widen the parameters of debate, but it can be hard for publications because our circulations are going down as well uh, across Europe. And as the, as they go down, then you end up with a relatively smaller number of people uh, who are involved in them, and they might regard things to be unacceptable. And so you get this sort of this circle of ever narrowing opinion corridors that are only really changed when you get somebody like big, like Trump, who comes along to try to try to widen them. Now, that is a very painful adjustment process. But I think Sweden's opinion corridor is widening a lot. I was listening to the, um, this time last year when having an election, listening to the debates there, and I was amazed to hear how many leaders of Swedish parties were talking about positions that they would have regarded as racist and extreme only two years ago. So you get um, the Christian Democrats, all sorts of people are coming out talking about the, the problems of Muslim penetration of, of free schools up in the north. Um, you had, you know, the, um, the, the leader of the Swedish Conservatives who was saying to the government, what, are you, what makes you most proud of immigration? Is it the crime or is it the beggars on the streets? And this was the moderator, you know. And I remember... I was sitting there with my wife who wasn't really listening and she was saying, is that this um, Jimmy Orkson guy talking? I was saying, no, darling, this is, this is the moderator. And she, was, she hadn't been between, tuned in to Swedish politics, couldn't work out just how it had changed. Now, as a result, Sweden did something pretty incredible that election. It stopped Orkson coming first. That was his aim. He stayed in third place. Now, why did he stay in third place? Because the opinion corridor had widened. He was denied the political space. And the Swedish political system went through what is for Swedes a quite a painful adjustment. But it went through that adjustment and democracy was working. So I do think the opinion corridor explains so much. And widening that is the remedy to populism. When you visited Elva Kaffet two years ago, you described how Sweden's famous compassion is in danger of eating itself. What would you say is the perception of Sweden's example for the moment in Britain? I think Sweden, like Denmark, is a country which is getting it right after a long period of getting it wrong. Now, this is... Um, you can. I would hesitate to speak with any authority about Sweden, given that much as I love this country, I come here for only a few weeks a year. So I can only really say what hits me in the streets. Now, what hits a visitor to the street um, four or five years ago, in, um, a visitor from London, would be struck by how many people were in the corner um, begging. Now, in Britain, this is seen to be not so much a sign of poverty, but a sort of decay of, of order. The order is not being kept in the streets. People feel kind of unsafe here. It's, um, now, that has changed a lot. 
um, here. So Sweden now, you're struck by how many of these scooters are wandering around Stockholm. So I think there's been an, a, an adjustment there. Um, I think that Sweden, that the Swedish debate after the painful shock and the threat of Oxen and the Sweden Democrats has responded by the main political parties taking people's concerns a bit more seriously. Um, everybody's been doing that pretty much, and I think that it's working. Um, I think that it's still it's still very difficult for me to work out even how to describe the Sweden Democrats. I'm talking to you now as if they're a sort of, you know, I, I don't regard them as far right, I don't regard them as neo-fascist. Um, I used to think that before I really looked at the policies. But then when you look at what um, Jimmy Augustin says, look at what is difficult to reconcile any of that with a far-right agenda by the, any sort of modern European standards. And this is important because you have to ask, why are so many Swedes backing it? And it's not because they are far-right. It's because a bunch of relatively normal policies are being described by the other guys as far-right. And I think that, that is changing. I did think there was a time where Sweden's openness was eating itself. Um, and that happened when I was, again, a few years ago, I would pick up the newspapers and I would read about um, centres that were built for asylum seekers being burnt down in protest. Now, that was, you know, really incredible. If that happened in Britain, it would be shocking. And yet it was happening here relatively recently. The other concern that I had was that Swedes, some of them seem to be almost getting acclimatised to this. So you'd pick up, a, I remember I was here in February a couple of weeks ago, I picked up a newspaper, and they spoke about some being, somebody being shot dead at point-blank range on Malmo town centre. And this wasn't even a front-page story, this was in page six or seven, right? Now, if somebody was shot dead in the middle of London town centre or Manchester town centre, that would be a big story. And there had been this unspoken understanding that it wasn't really us. This was the immigrants who were shooting themselves. This is the underworld. And that Sweden is still nine-tenths heaven and one-tenth hell, but you can avoid the hell if you move in the right circles. And there was a sort of cordon sanitaire. And it felt as if that was becoming a dangerous consensus in Sweden, that there was a cordon sanitaire that separated um, Sweden, as is popularly described, from the kind of underbelly of violence that was getting very difficult for police to investigate because the people involved wouldn't um, wouldn't cooperate with them. And then, of course, you had Sweden's open-heartedness, which I think is its greatest single um, attribute. My wife's parents, they came here because they were um, refugees from the Soviets. And this country, this wonderful country, gave them accommodation. They taught my wife Czech, her home language. They um, allowed, uh, they gave their allowed her parents to settle down here to become very prosperous. Her mum went on to have a great career in, um, in, um, in Astra. Um, so I have benefited, or rather for my wife, from Sweden's open-heartedness. So I can see why Sweden would think, OK, there's an asylum crisis, so let's be the international superpower. And it seemed to me as if Sweden was taking on a lot more than it could chew, but had vastly underestimated what it was like to take in these unaccompanied children. And the amount of care and required for teachers that would evolve, and that and this lack of realism was leading to populism, and it was going to lead to a fundamental rupture in the Swedish liberal order. I'm now a lot more optimistic about that because I think in the last two or three years, um, people have taken these lessons to heart. There have been some very brave 
Swedish writers who've been writing these problems in a way that they've taken a lot of fire, including in in the pages of SVD. And I think that is that has led to a greater acceptance. That, that And I suppose in a way it's natural. This is a shock that nobody's seen before. No country in the world took anywhere near as many child migrants per capita as Sweden. So, of course, you're going to be overwhelmed for a while. Um, but I think the Swedish democracy and the Swedish government corrected itself. Um, so this is... I'm now back to thinking when I come to Sweden that I actually want to live here. Okay, so let us end now on this positive note. I think it's time for us to conclude this conversation in, today with Katarina Kerkeinen, Edward Hollers, and myself. Thank you so much for joining us today, Professor Nelson. We really much appreciated it. Great honor. Thanks also to all of you listeners. We will be back on Friday. Don't miss that. Hej då. Hej då. Hej då.